0: Dear Father, as we consider these um, visions in Daniel and possible uh, understanding that would have uh, meaningful applications to our time, Uh, please give us insight and wisdom and uh, most of all, open up something about your kingdom just now. Amen. All right. So you're all familiar with these kinds of um, pictures that we have from these uh, visions in Daniel, and I guess I would just um, say a little bit on prophecy that... Um you know a discussion of this often leads to a couple things one is fear and the other is uh, excitement and i remember uh, a long time ago that my mindset reading books like daniel and revelation was primarily uh, man if i mean if i study this hard enough you know i'm going to figure out the events of the future and uh, the timeline will open up and i'll understand maybe the next major world power maybe something about the next president the next major uh, catastrophe. And uh, that, that was kind of um, at least my thinking for some time. And um, I think uh, th- that is not the primary purpose of prophecy in, in my understanding here. I kind of like this uh, t-shirt here that I saw a while back. What part of, and then we have a complex, um, events of Daniel and Revelation, uh, don't you understand? Okay, it isn't that the details aren't important. Okay, but uh, if we're missing the big picture, and I think um, I think these uh, descriptions here in Daniel Revelation there is a big picture. And I think we could have even a lot of details right, uh, but if we don't pull out a, a major message from these books, we could have a lot of details and still miss um, something of real of significance. And I thought of one uh, group here. there is some evidence and actually, this is something we won't get to um, here in the next hour. But one of the prophecies in Daniel um, can, can be interpreted as very accurately coming to the time of Christ. And there's some evidence that Jews in, in the first century, or in anticipation of, of the coming Messiah, were expecting the Messiah to come at that time. They were looking for the coming Messiah, eagerly anticipating, thinking this is the time, it's going to happen. And just when you think about these people and all the things they were doing, the Bible reading, you know, keeping the Sabbath, paying tithe... Uh, being very careful in observance of the laws. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not a bad list of things that they were doing. But yet, God came to them in human form, and they said, he has a devil. I mean, they looked at the true God, and they didn't know him. Okay, so we could have a lot of details right about prophecy. But if our picture of God is 180 degrees backwards, then the correct prophecy would be uh, negated. OK, so there are, we need to kind of prioritize and understand uh, what things are really important. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, let's just say, I don't I don't think you can read Daniel this way, but that that I could actually go through now, and we would really map this out, and we'd think, man, uh, we know who the next president's going to be in 2012. Uh, we know the year that China will overtake the US as a dominant superpower, whatever crazy things we could come up with here. Um, you know, what would that do for your spiritual life? Okay, so uh, I think I think these things are important, but it has to fits, fit into our theological understanding of who God is. I think Daniel is a great time to make a point that the book of Revelation, I think, operates in a, in a similar kind of framework as Daniel. I've tried to make this point uh, uh, last year when we went through Isaiah, because Isaiah used, uses the book of Revelation so much, that the seal sequence, the trumpet sequence and the bowl sequence in the book of Revelation... Rather than seeing these as we are now moving along in a chronological timeline, okay, that rather these are uh, overlapping. We're getting different views, uh, different perspectives, and that they all have the same ending point. Okay, we won't talk about that now, but we can, we can line these up as coming to the same ending point. Then we're going back, we're getting a different perspective on things. And that's exactly what we see in Daniel. In the three visions that we're going to go over very briefly—Daniel two, Daniel seven, Daniel eight—we're uh, we're going back. We're looking at the same thing, but from a different perspective, and to get um, some some additional important information. So I would rather see books like Daniel and Revelation as kind of like a symphony, where we've got a theme, a recurring theme, okay? But it has variations. We keep going over the theme. We keep getting additional um, different parts that all come together. Yet there is a forward-moving aspect to both Daniel and Revelation. It does come to an end, okay? But it's, it's kind of a, as, a, as a climax here with, with re- repetition of the theme. And as we've said in, in uh, the book of Revelation, that um, theology trumps chronology, okay? So the, the meaning of all of this, it's to change our, our theological understanding about God, about the adversary, about really important issues, it's not so much primarily to inform us of a chronological timeline. Okay? Not, that that, not that there isn't information about that. There is. We'll talk about that in Daniel. Okay? But, but there are things more important than understanding Greece and Rome and Medo-Persia and where all of these uh, nations fit in. <clears throat> okay, So the first uh, vision, I won't read through the whole story. I'm just going to read Daniel's conclusion, interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, this was the dream. Now I will tell your majesty what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of all kings. You are the head of gold. And uh, what I found amazing here is in these three dreams, it's interpreted for us in so many places. Here, we, we don't debate about this. The head of gold is Babylon. It tells us right there. And after you, there will be another empire not as great as yours. And here we would get some differing opinion. Some would say this is media, Others would say this is Media, Persia. Um, I'll try to make a case uh, for this here as we go through. And after that, a third empire, uh, an empire of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. And again, some would say this is Media and then Persia, and others would say, no, this refers to Greece. And then there will be a fourth empire as strong as iron, which shatters and breaks everything. And just as iron shatters everything, it will shatter and crush all the earlier empires, Again, not everyone would agree with this, but uh, I will uh, try to make a case for Rome here in this case. And then, of course, we have the feet and the toes, which were partly clay, partly iron. Uh, This is something that, that we'll come back to next time. And you know what happens, how all of this ends in the first vision. At the time of those rulers, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never end. It will never be conquered, but it will last forever. You saw how a stone broke loose from a cliff without anyone touching it, and how it struck the statue made of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God is telling your majesty what will happen in the future. Okay, and uh, I think here we can... Well, let me just put in... I uh, I put in some footnotes just from some of the Bibles um, that I read, and they all have very similar footnotes to this. So I thought I'd just include these here. This both Good News and the Net Bible. The Net Bible has about 70,000 footnotes. There are more footnotes on a page there than there is text. Sometimes there will just be one verse and then a whole page of footnotes. So I enjoy reading that one. But here was the Net Bible comments here. The majority of scholars seem to agree that the second empire is that of the Medes, the third, that of the Persians, the fourth, the great Greek empire. And then dot, dot, dot. Others, however, have interpreted the second empire as Medo-Persian, the third, the Greek, In the fourth, the Roman Empire. And that, I think, pretty accurately reflects um, how people look at this statue. So we have a couple different options. Okay, but let's just say something about the stone briefly. Here, I think we can can be confident what the stone refers to. It grew to be a mountain that covered the whole earth. And uh, this imagery is is just used so frequently throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, This is one of the most frequently Quoted verses in the Old Testament by uh, the New Testament that the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to me the most important of all. And in Isaiah, but to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. And there are other verses in the Old Testament, but you know, Jesus here in, uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, told this parable. Okay, and then at the end, he said, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? Now he's quoting Psalms. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. And uh, the, the description here that... Um, if you fall on the stone, this is to be converted. Okay, but if the stone falls on you, uh, it, it crushes. Okay, so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit next time. But, but Jesus is the stone. Okay, he came out of the cliff, not by any human hand, and it destroyed the rock. Now, the best verse on this, though, is in uh, 1 Peter. Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. And, and notice this, this mountain that covers the whole earth. Uh, it seems that, that we are also stones in forming this mountain. So we are to come as living stones and let yourself be used in building the spiritual temple where you will serve as holy priests, offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this was written by Peter um, here, and uh, we're going to talk about later on in Daniel that there was an interruption in the, um, in the daily sacrifice. And um, God's activity in Daniel, that will be our subject next time, but um, is Peter referring to animal sacrifice here? Where we will serve as priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, I chose a valuable stone, which I am placing as the cornerstone in Zion. And Whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. This stone is of great value for you that believe but for those who do not believe again It's a it's a splitting point here the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all So Jesus is the stone and we are living stones that that join together Okay, and uh, just as one other little bit on this Peter Here Jesus said to Peter you are a rock and I would say on this rock foundation, on this truth that Jesus, that, that Peter just revealed, on this truth, <clears throat> I will build my church and not even death will be able to overcome it. So we'll come back to the mountain next time. I'm just trying to set some um, a little bit of uh, parameters here that I think the first vision in Daniel, it sets out the big picture from Babylon all the way to the end of time. And now as we go through the subsequent visions, we, we get more uh, finely tuned details. On what this really means okay and I just had to point out here that do you think it's a coincidence that Nebuchadnezzar has this vision and the very next thing he's described as doing is he had a gold statue made entirely gold okay and you know the story about how everyone had to bow down and worship it don't you think he was thinking boy I don't want to just be the head that's temporary that's replaced by other kingdoms so he had a statue made gold from top to bottom Okay, I think it it probably came out of that um, vision and his desire to really be the whole thing. Okay, but let's come to, to the second of the three visions now, Daniel 7. And again, I just want to get through the three visions, and then let's see if we can try to put all three of them together. So in the first year that Belshazzar was king of Babylonia, I had a dream. Four huge beasts came up out of the ocean, each one different from the others, the first one looked like a lion, but had wings like an eagle. While I was watching, the wings were torn off. The beast was lifted up and made to stand up straight. And then a human mind was given to it. Okay, so what does this refer to? Well, the the lion here was, you know, this was the symbol of Babylon. In fact, the lion here was the the goddess Ishtar. And if, I don't know if any of you have been to Berlin to see the Ishtar Gate and you see all these lions and dragons and other things on the gate of Ishtar. So this is a symbol of uh, Babylon. So I think we're starting at the same place. It was the head of gold in the first dream. And now we have the lion. And uh, I don't know, my own, own impression of this is that here, the lion's wings were torn off. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar went insane after he got proud and thought that he had done it all. And um, he crawled around like a beast for a period of time. But then, remember, he repented, and we talked about that last time, how incredible. King Nebuchadnezzar actually was converted, and so he was lifted up, made to stand up straight, and a human mind was given to it. So I I, I think this refers to uh, the king of Babylon, who God was was able to, to win over to his side. So anyway, same starting point here, Babylon. Okay, the next beast looked like a bear standing on its hind legs, or... Uh, many versions say raised up on one side. It was holding three ribs between its teeth, and a voice said to it, Go on, eat as much meat as you can. So some have interpreted here the bear on its side or raised up on hind legs uh, might indicate um, the, the two nations here, Medo-Persia. So again, from the net Bible footnotes, they say perhaps representing media persia apparently symbolizing military conquest. And maybe the three ribs are a reference to the conquest of Lydia, Egypt, and Babylonia by the Medo-Persians. Okay, That seems like a a reasonable uh, interpretation to me. And then the third beast. While I was watching, another beast appeared. It looked like a leopard. But on its back, there were four wings, like the wings of a bird. And it had four heads. It had a look of authority about it. And again I'm I'm quoting this cuz it's you know non-denominational I'm just trying to find uh what how other people are looking at this uh and so their interpretation here is the third animal is Greece most likely identification of the four heads is the fourfold division of the empire of Alexander the great and so um you know Alexander great had such a huge empire died at a young age and then his four generals kind of divided it up Okay, so this, this actually would seem to fit um, pretty well with the description of Alexander the Great and his four generals. And this, this will be kind of our, our biggest point here. What is the fourth beast? As I was watching, a fourth beast appeared. It was powerful, horrible, terrifying. With its huge iron teeth, it crushed its victims, and then it trampled on them. Unlike the other beasts, it had ten horns. Okay, and and I'll try to make a case here for Rome. We can do that, I think, more easily when we get to Daniel 8. While I was staring at the horns, I saw a little horn coming up among the others. It tore out three of the horns that were already there. This horn had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting proudly. Okay, so uh, what does this refer to? Well, I like here, Daniel has this interaction here with the angel, he asks for clarification. And the clarification here uh, in the story is, this is the explanation I was given. The fourth beast is a fourth empire that will be on the earth and will be different from all the other empires. It will crush the whole earth and trample it down. Okay, now in what sense will it be different? Let's read on. The ten horns are ten kings who will rule that empire, and then another king will appear. He will be very different from the earlier ones. And will overthrow three kings. He will speak against the supreme God and oppress God's people. And notice his activities here seem quite different. He will try to change their religious laws and festivals, and God's people will be under his power for three and a half years. Okay. Now, what does this refer to? Well, um, about four or five years ago, I was uh, stranded at an airport for an entire day, and I didn't have anything to read. And so I just, you know, went to the bookstore and grabbed this book not really knowing anything about it here, but it's, you know, history of the world. I thought, okay, good. I'll just read for a long time. So, uh, read the entire day and uh it was it was actually quite enjoyable to get through a uh, a book in in a long period of time. But I was just um the, the person that wrote this is certainly not a Christian. Doubts that Jesus really was an actual historical figure. So I'm not anticipating getting any uh, spiritual um, insights necessarily from this book but then as I'm reading along uh, this I found uh, quite uh, shocking here let talk going through Rome talking about all the Roman empires and emperors and so on and then uh, this there was one great survivor of the crisis of the Western Roman Empire after AD 400 this was the religion which had arisen from very small beginnings over the previous centuries to become the official ideology of the empire Christianity And reading on, the church hierarchy was turning into a shadow bureaucracy, a second empire. Wide administrative structure standing alongside the first. And uh, there's a lot more detail in these pages in between, but what he was describing is that the the power that came to be at that time was the religion. So you have a pagan Rome, and then you have this religious power that that rose to uh, supremacy. Okay, and later on in the late 11th century, a series of reforming popes had aspired to centralize so as to impose a near theocratic structure on the whole of Europe. Okay, so, uh, I just, I want to be careful here and not, uh, I'm not uh, bashing, uh, Catholics here. This was Christianity. Right? this was the Christian church, but it was a, a Christian power that was dominant and, and as we'll discuss here, I think, uh, quite unchristlike in many ways. So coming back here, it was different from all the other beasts. Ten horns are ten kings who will rule that empire. And notice here the footnote. I have this in both of my Bibles here about these ten horns and kings. See Revelation 17:12. Well, in Revelation 17, there's another beast and it would seem to be the same beast. It's got these ten horns and heads and clearly borrowing um, from Daniel. Okay, so uh, we, we need to go to Revelation. Maybe that will give us some, some insight onto this uh, fourth beast. So we want to know about this other king. will be very different from the earlier ones. He will speak against the supreme God and oppress God's people. He will try to change their religious laws. The net Bible comment here on this fourth beast is that it differs from the others in that it's nondescript. Apparently so fearsome that Daniel could find nothing with which to compare it. So we we turn over to Revelation. Okay, when we talked about this before, remember in in Revelation 12, we have the church described in purity, standing on the sun, fleeing from this 10-headed beast, okay, and goes out into the desert, and and God uh, protects her. And then uh, remarkably here, as we read on into Revelation, we find in Revelation 17 that the woman is now sitting on the beast and remember when John saw the woman not now fleeing from the beast but sitting on the beast uh, sigvi tonsted's interpretation here is not just I was shocked but I was appalled okay that we have here a really a religion uniting with worldly powers to carry out all kinds of, of ends, and and I think the the description here in revelation we were allowed to bring this back into daniel uh what was different about this what i think daniel is trying to describe here in the vision is we have a a spiritual power not just a worldly power conquering nations uh but but a spiritual power that is at work okay so let me just uh, if i can try to say what i think this may be describing here you know, the, the church early on, the Christian church, was the persecuted minority, okay? And you're probably familiar with this quote here, that it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church, okay? But then all of that changed, okay? We have in, in 312, Constantine legalized Christianity, and if you've heard the story about the, vi- the vision that Constantine had, whether this, he did this for political motives or whatever it was, but the vision he had was, by this sign you shall conquer, And the sign was a symbol of of Jesus, uh, the first two letters of Christ in Greek. And so that was put on the shields of the army. And and Christianity became now a a persecuting force rather than, than than a power that was persecuted and that was spreading. And so this was the first time anyone associated the Christian faith with violence And by 380 AD, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it was a crime not to be a Christian. Okay, And so we have now the the militant church that seeks to convert by force, coercion, and threats. And a quote here from Charlemagne, who said, if there is any one of the Saxon people lurking among them unbaptized, and if he scorns to come to baptism and stay a pagan, uh, let him die. Okay, so we're inflicting temporal pain to help someone avoid eternal pain. Torture is justified if you can somehow save the person. But what are you saving for someone from? I mean, threats certainly bring people into the church, but what kind of a religion are you converted to? Um, so, yeah, the church grew, but uh, was, did it grow in the right way? You know, and imagine here that you've got a, a force coming at you with Um, maybe it wasn't the cross here, maybe it was the first two letters um, here of of Christ uh, in Greek that was on the shields, but can you even imagine here that the cross being used as a symbol uh, on a shield, you know, where we have the cross here, I mean, the the highlight of the the demonstration of self-sacrificial love, God laid down his life for his enemies, and now he has his people killing them and using the cross as a symbol. It, it's a complete uh, counter-opposite of what Christ was really like. And so, uh, devastating when you have this as the face of Christianity in the world. And uh, again, just um, some of the things. you know We have uh, the incredible greed, uh, lust for power, indulgences, and all of the, the horrible things that, that came out of that uh i mean again immense cruelty people burned at the stake the inquisition the crusades you know we uh, intermediaries someone needs to be between us and god Uh, the the claim to infallibility and all of the the things that go along with that Uh, who was it that did not want the bible to be written in the language of the people it was the church okay we need to have someone else interpret you can't just give that out there to the people to read for themselves Purgatory, um, a certain view of an eternally burning hell. I think we could just, a number of things that were quite devastating. And as Lord Acton would say, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we see a, a church um, with all power and yet uh, extremely corrupted. And um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this was Christianity, but uh, we just compare Jesus Here, in the humble life that he lived, and he would say, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and we compare that with the extravagance and the wealth and the luxury of the church. Okay, and uh, the reason this is so uh, devastating, I think, uh, let's just consider uh, a vaccine, you know. Christianity, when it was in its pure form, when you think about the church in Acts and the way the people were living and the way things spread so rapidly, it was like a virus, you know, contagious. Everyone was getting it. People were being you know, converted um, all the time. What do you do when you give a vaccine? You give a dead virus. And what does that do? I mean, isn't this one of the greatest accomplishments of medicine? Uh, eradicating polio and all kinds of things. Um, so a, a dead version of Christianity... Um, I think is the most effective means of really eradicating what Christianity really looks like. Okay, so I I think this was a a long period of uh, vaccination where we have a a dead, really a a malignant form of Christianity. And so you come to someone and say, you know, I'm a Christian. Let me tell you about Christ. And they will assume that by Christian, you mean all of these other things that I just described. Christian does not mean Christ-like. It means how the church had portrayed Christianity. So I think the description here in Daniel of how, uh, how devastating this was, it's, it's describing the world really being enveloped in, in darkness. And we call it the Dark Ages for a good reason. So uh, we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and then I'm just going to say Christianity as as the last power there. <clears throat> Okay, now I I think uh, we can perhaps reinforce this here with the third vision in Daniel 8. In the third vision that Belshazzar was king. Now remember, Belshazzar is the one with the handwriting on the wall. He is just before um, the Persians are about to conquer Babylon. I saw a second vision. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the one that saw the first vision. In the vision, I suddenly found myself in the walled city of Susa, Now, this is significance here because this is a residence of the Persian kings. Because as we see the beasts now in this vision, we start with uh, Medo-Persia. In his vision, he's in Susa. I was standing by the Ulai River, and there beside the river I saw a ram that had two long horns, one of which was longer and newer than the other. Remember the bear that was on its side. And so now we have the horns that are uneven. I watched the ram budding with his horn to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stop him or escape his power. He did as he pleased and grew arrogant. And uh, again, I I love the fact here, we don't need to guess on this. Daniel gets the interpretation. The angel would tell him, The ram that you saw that had two horns represents the kingdom of Media and Persia. This is why I think it makes the most sense in the the vision we just described earlier that we lump Media and Persia together, okay? Because in this vision, Daniel is told by uh, the angel that that represents Media and Persia, okay? So now we have our starting point. It's not Babylon, it's, it's Media and Persia. So while I was wondering what this meant, a goat came rushing out to the west, moving so fast that his feet didn't touch the ground. He had one prominent horn between his eyes. He came toward the ram which I had seen standing beside the river and rushed at him with all his force. I watched him attack the ram. He was so angry that he smashed into him and broke the two horns. The ram had no strength to resist. He was thrown to the ground and trampled on, and there was no one could save him. The groat grew more and more arrogant, but at the height of his power, his horn was broken off. So who's after Media, Persia, Greece? And uh, again, there's no uh, debate here. Because we read it right in the text. The angel comes by and tells Daniel, the goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the prominent horn between his eyes is the first king. So, not much mystery there either. Alexander, who at the height of his power um, died. Okay, so this is, this would seem pretty clear so far. Okay, and in its place, four prominent horns came up, just like the last vision. Okay, so it's the, the four generals. Okay, that that, uh, led Greece after Alexander uh, the Great died. Okay, so now the one we're really interested in, though. Come back to this fourth beast. Now, out of one of these four horns grew a little horn, whose power extended toward the south and the east and toward the promised land. It grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven. Now, is a physical army strong enough to attack the army of heaven? How do you attack the army of heaven? The stars themselves... It threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. It also acted arrogantly against the prince of the heavenly army. Okay, who's the prince of the heavenly army? Okay, wouldn't that be perhaps a reference to Jesus? Stop the daily sacrifices offered to him and ruined the temple. People sinned there instead of offering the proper daily sacrifices, and true religion, or in some versions, truth, was thrown to the ground. The horn was successful in everything that it did. So um, I think uh, this is kind of the point I was trying to make earlier. This fourth beast, this spiritual power that goes towards the promised land, wouldn't that have kind of a spiritual um, significance that attacks the army of heaven, okay? The stars themselves, the prince of the heavenly army. This is, um, you know, in this conflict where, where God is not using his force to eliminate the adversary, um, you know, uh, the, the adversary was, was successful. The army of heaven was defeated. Okay, and this kind of imagery is used frequently. Remember when uh, Jesus sent out his 72 disciples to preach, and they came back, and they were successful. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, uh, doesn't necessarily mean he actually saw Satan fall from heaven, but it, it's, again, an allusion back to this, falling from heaven here is as being defeated in a spiritual sense and uh, as hard as it is to admit here uh, God would seem to have been defeated during this period of time briefly now but here's the troubling thing I've been kind of listing the footnotes uh, in some of the Bibles I'm reading here and they both come down quite authoritatively on this vision in Daniel 8 no ambiguity the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes Okay, so uh, what are we to do with that? Who is Antiochus Epiphanes? So just a little bit. There's there's not a lot on Antiochus Epiphanes, but he was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. These are his years uh, where he ruled, 175 to 164. He was the son of a great Antiochus ruler, okay, who actually ruled a large part of Asia until it was taken over by the Romans. And it's true that Antiochus Epiphanes did suspend the temple services, and so that's why interrupting the daily sacrifices, that's where people see Antiochus Epiphanes here because he did that, it's true. But he was taken hostage by Rome and uh, then allowed to return to Antioch. And, and here is uh, just a quote here that describes what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes and, uh, and Rome. So Antiochus, this is Epiphanes, besieged Alexandria in Egypt, but he was unable to cut communications to the city and he also needed to deal with a revolt in Judea. So at the end of 169, he withdrew his army. In his absence, uh, Ptolemy and his brother were uh, reconciled. Antiochus, angered at his loss of control over the king, invaded again. The Egyptians sent to Rome, asking for help. On the outskirts of the capital, he met Papilius, with whom he had been friends during his stay in Rome. But instead of a friendly welcome, Papilius offered the king an ultimatum from the Senate, he must evacuate Egypt and Cyprus immediately. Antiochus begged to have time to consider, but Papilius drew a circle around him in the sand with his cane and told him to decide before he stepped outside it. Antiochus chose to obey the Roman ultimatum, and, and so on. Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is Antiochus' um, epiphanies is a, is a relatively minor figure, a relatively weak power. Okay, does this fit the description that we've just read about this, this last, um, power. Again, if we allow all three of these visions to overlap, and if we look at the first beast in Daniel 2, which shatters and breaks everything, shatters and crushes all the earlier empires, and in Daniel 7, the fourth beast with iron teeth and uh, the little horn that comes up, okay, that human eyes and a mouth that was boasting proudly, and that the description of the fourth beast here, or the horn that comes up, will be different. It will crush the whole earth. And then finally, the in, in uh, Daniel 8, uh, that this beast invades the promised land. It uh, attacks the army of heaven, the stars themselves. It defies the prince of the heavenly army. Uh, does this fit for the relatively minor historical figure of Antiochus Epiphanes? So my point is the shoe is much too big in, um, in Daniel to describe the, the relatively small foot of um, Antiochus Epiphanes, that there is a much bigger power um, that is uh, at play here. And, and finally, I'll make this my last slide here, and then, then we'll get to, to God's actions described in Daniel next time. But if we just read on in, in Daniel 8, Mortal man, understand the meaning, the vision, the, the one that we just read about the little horn and all of that, has to do with the end of the world. Okay, and again, keep it secret, it will be a long time before it does not come true. So it seems to me it's hard to have it both ways. If if some will interpret and say, well, Daniel was written right around the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, 165, 170 um, BC, and it's describing Antiochus Epiphanes uh, but then that the meaning has to do with the end of the world. Um, you know, it's just hard to, hard to reconcile that. I think there's a much uh, darker, uh, deeper power at work um, here that's described all the way through, uh, much more than Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, so next time we'll, we've kind of discussed the, the adversary and what the adversary's up to in, in Daniel, and next time we'll talk about what God is seen as doing.